Hey everyone, welcome to the Waterlad Podcast. I'm James Marshall and this episode is brought to you by waterlad.com. No, it's not really, but go check out that website. It's a hissing website. It will tell you, on there it will tell you how to get involved with the actual sponsors, Fortune Favours, Pure Sports CBD, a couple of real great products with some good discounts for you listeners if you're keen to get involved with either of them. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please share it. It's much appreciated. Um, any shares are really, really appreciated. It's the only way I can grow this podcast is people like you guys sharing it if you enjoy it. So please do that. But anyway, let's crack into it. Today I have an English Premiership legend. He's played for the Cornish Pirates, Worcester Warriors. He's spent a whopping nine years at London Irish, winning 97 Man of the Match awards. He's had a stint at Saracens winning the Premiership and he's represented Scotland on the international stage on 18 occasions. It is the legend himself, Blair Cowan. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. What an honour to be on. What a lad. <laughs> hey, you're fresh off scoring two tries yesterday and a very impressive win. Talk me through that game. London Irish are back. It was good. We haven't done back-to-back Premiership five-pointers probably as long as I've been there. So it was, it was, a, bit, it was a real random one, actually. Like, I felt like we lost. We, uh, performance wasn't great, but we managed to get the five points. Um, we got a bit of a bark in it after the game. Did you? Pretty random. Jeez, that's weird. Eh? Yeah. It's unlike Irish. The culture's obviously changed. The, the growth and where we're heading is like that. There was we look at our performances, not the results. But we definitely we got to enjoy the wins as well. And there's a few beers after, no doubt. <laughs> and talk me through your tries because um, I just watched them. Then one low key celebration, and then one oh, I just couldn't resist. They had to get the big punch the ball. <laughs> Gee whiz! <laughs> just one outs on the ball, was it? <laughs> I can't remember because it's like. It becomes so surreal actually scoring a try. I don't know if it actually happened or I just dripped it. Yes. <laughs> I was telling one of the boys, I'm like, as I'm running over the line, I'm like waiting for the whistle to blow to come back. I'm like, how have I scored? This isn't what I do. It's not what I'm paid for. for. And what about the Scotland game? Did you watch that? You must have been pretty um, stoked for the boys to get up over England. At the end of our game, we had the TV on in the, um, in the changing rooms and it was half time. So we managed to catch the second half and just epic. Like I couldn't think of a, a better thing to happen for Scotland rugby and probably just for Scotland as a whole right now needing something before the lockdowns and COVID, um, some sort of inspiration. And I think the highlight for me was watching Scott Steele come off the bench and close it out and like perform beautifully and did exactly what they needed. Um, so I was just super stoked for him and super stoked for all the boys and they, I got a few snappies of them sending it, so that, that sort of got me up after. And a bit of jealousy, obviously, you want to be a part of that, but it was awesome to see. So what's the feedback been for you? Why, why aren't you involved with them at the moment? Because I know you were recently picked with them again, so what's what's the go there? I'm not in the, the starting frame at the moment, and rightly so. they got some talented boys there. Uh, what they made clear to me was, look, you're, you're in the frame, but we um, with the COVID bubbles and the travel, we're, we're just going to keep it pretty small and those boys that are actually going to play. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm, I'm in the in the slips if there's potential injury, but other than that, they're, they're basically running for a smaller squad at the moment. And you've had, it's been a big couple of weeks for you. Eh? You've just recently had a baby. We Eli Kingston Cowan, what a lad he is. Um, how's that been? You were buzzing last time I spoke to you, but um, sounds like it may have been a bit tougher the last few weeks. <laughs> 
it's really hit home the last few days. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> no, nah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, Eli um, Kingston Cowan, named in Kingston because that's where he was born yeah. um, and conceived. Um, oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> just got to find the father. Um, <laughs> no, um, absolutely wrapped. Like this is my first. I've got um, three other nephews and. Uh, my my other my other younger brother he's just fell pregnant with their first and um, it's yeah. also a boy, but like mate, I I'm still buzzing. I still get up every morning and run to his sort of crib and just stare at him and sort of knock the crib a bit so he wakes up. So I get to pick him <laughs> up in the morning and have my morning coffee with him. <laughs> That's probably why he's not sleeping that well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's why Rachel wants to leave me. Um, <laughs> nah, it's me. I dress him, dress him every now and then, and Rachel's just like, "Oh, you're playing up." What are you, um, you dressing? Because he was born so small, and most of his stuff was zero to three months, and we oh, got yeah. limited newborn gears because we we thought he was going to be big, but he was tiny, and all his stuff's just hanging off him. So I've got him in the old school '80s get up, baggy pants. <laughs> Um, pair of pair of vans where his toes are basically at his heels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the dad life! How good. Were you ever tempted to call him Steve? Because I know everyone calls you Steve now, and it'd be good to get a bit of background on how you came with that nickname. This is blowing up massively and sort of just, uh, just spread like wildfire. But uh, it was you know how far pirates is away and. Um, I picked up a back spasm or something and the doc gave me muscle relaxant and I, I took probably a few too many on the bus ride home and it's like five and a half hours ride home. Had drool coming out of my the side of my face. <laughs> it was like on my iPad, just in my complete own world. And the other boys were talking about something. It was either something to do with the game or something current. Yeah. And it just so happened I took my headphones off and... Um, just as they finished talking about that one subject, I somehow bring that exact subject up and started talking about what they just finished talking about. And uh, Jeb Sinclair and Luke Narraway, um, basically two of the leaders of uh, banter and who was going to pepper you at the club, just thought that I reminded them off of the scene from Wolf of Wall Street, you know, when he takes all the quaaludes yeah. and he can barely walk to his car. And he's, he's, he starts going, Steve, Steve Madden, Steve. So then they just started calling me Steve on the back of that because I was pretty looted out on the uh, on the muscle relaxant. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. And people still call you Steve. Eh? Everyone still calls you Steve. Yeah, oh mate, people call me that and don't even know the back the background of the story. Like they just jumped on the bandwagon. I'm like, you don't really have a right to call me Steve. I'm trying to actually, um, <laughs> I'm trying to get past that sort of stage of my life. Can we move on? But it stuck with me. Oh, like all good nicknames. I love a good nickname story. But one thing that I always remember about you is you used to always, in the meetings, I used to love going to meetings with you. Um, in the changing rooms, you'd be sweet, talking code, you'd be real relaxed, you'd know all your roles and stuff. And then as soon as we got into the meeting, the coach would ask you a question and you would just fully freeze up and say some of the weirdest stuff. Um, some of your answers were just so out there that everyone would just couldn't help but laugh at 
we need to squash this a little bit because you really love to play up on this one. It happened maybe once or twice, <laughs> but you make it sound like it's every meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it was every meeting you got asked something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you love a bit of spice, Jimmy, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I get real bad peer pressure whenever it comes to media or in front of crowds. Ever since I was young, even with any sort of public speaking, uh, my mum's from Scotland, my dad's from the Cook Islands, but I seem to sort of inherit my dad's freshness when I'm put under pressure <laughs> and then I just come out with some doozies and I always cross my words and put the wrong words um, <laughs> in the wrong spots at the wrong times. And there's always you or Mike Coman um, who's just sitting there waiting in the slips for me to mess up so they can just pepper me for the rest of the day as well. <laughs> But you you have had a talent to um, use massive words, often out of context. Yeah, I love the internet. <laughs> and yeah, like I like I like whenever anyone asks me um, how have I lasted so long in my career and how did I get there, my my golden answer is always just fake it till you make it. Yeah, and I just use big words where people question themselves if I've used it right, and then they don't even think twice. But like. <laughs> correcting me they're like oh he must know what he's on about so you just got to fake it to you make it jimmy <laughs> oh you've done a good job <laughs> yeah <that>. yeah <laughs> the other word that you used to refuse to say was footwork if someone had good footwork you used to <laughs> feet work feet work 100 feet work <laughs> you're not running on a set foot is singular jimmy <laughs> feet is plural you use two feet when you step someone don't you so it's feet work <laughs> Yeah, the more that I the more that I've thought about that, it makes sense. But it's just so weird when you say that that this guy's got good feet work. <laughs> I just picture someone just hopping down the field just on one foot and just stepping on this one leg. So it's feet work. So all you progressive coaches out there, feet work. <laughs> Let's change it. Let's change the. Let's norm. change it. Oh. Should we start a hashtag? hashtag feet, work. feet work. Great feet work. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so good. But anyway, you mentioned your parents, Scottish mum, Cook Island father. Let's go back to your childhood. That's a pretty unique combo. So what was what was it like for you growing up? It's funny because the reaction you always get if you're, you're away and someone's like, oh, you sound like you're from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, I've been in New Zealand. What part of New Zealand are you from? Oh, Wellington. Oh, I love Wellington. Yeah, yeah. Upper Heart, Wellington. Oh, Oh, upper heart. <laughs> I always get that reaction and I just crack up every time. So, oh, that's nice. Uh, but no, I love my upbringing. Um, my dad's Cook Islands from Rarotonga. My mum's, um, she was born and raised in Scotland and she migrated in sort of mid to late teens uh, with my granddad and my uncle um, and my auntie. And, and then, I don't know, she must have enjoyed uh, the look of the brown brothers a bit foreign from where she was from so she hooked up with my dad and here i am uh, a real high, a real hybrid if you will <laughs> but yeah i, I raised an upper went to st pat silverstream college um played up all my kid rugby childhood rugby through up i actually played football before i um played rugby i didn't play rugby till i was like 12 13. true um, you were awful at yeah. football over there, though. <laughs> I reckon I was Razzly. 
So my mum told me anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to always have some pretty crack up stories about your dad um, and some of the advice that he gave you growing up. He must have been a bit of a character to be around. Everyone loved dad and mum was sort of the, the controller of the house and um, ran the cutter at our, at our home. But dad was sort of the gentle giant, but you don't get on his bad side. If you're on his bad side, you know, like on maybe five times in my life. Yeah. But no, no, no. And then I see, okay, that's where I get the, the red mist from at times. <laughs> Must be from dad. But um, even times I'd go back home, <laughs> like it was all, you know, the, the classic case, mum does the cooking and the boys do the dishes afterwards. Yeah. So I'd go home, haven't been home for a year or so, my brothers um, would all be, I'd be in the lounge and my brothers would be doing the dishes with dad and was over here. Hey, fuck. And I'd see this washing brush just go flying across the hallway and my brother's running off laughing and dad's running, chasing after them, pulling up his pants. They're like he's washing the dishes. They come in and they kick him. There's <laughs> reactions, just with the scrubbing brush, trying to scum them in the back of the head and they just cracking up, running off. And like, that's home for me. Just like, I just love it. Love those moments. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cracker! And you're um, you're also from a very quite a famous uh, rugby family. I remember the first thing you told me that your cousins were um, famous Wallaby Pet Cowan. What was it like growing up with him? He was all about the golf, eh? Oh, was he, he? He played. Yeah, he was he was gun at golf, and my uncle used to always take him. My uncle Daniel used to always take him down to Shannon Golf Course. Um, but Pick was my age, um, so we obviously definitely we grew up quite close together and um the first time i went down there with my older cousin his older brother ben they had a game it was like you know have you seen like all the youtube clips now like the run it straight ones yeah like that was the first time i ever seen that would have been when i was about 12 and it was those two and my <laughs> my oldest oldest cousins who at the time were like 10 years older than those they used to line them up on the 22 and the try line yeah and you just had to run full steam and um, those two would, and the, I still remember the noises to this day of the contacts. Oh. It was like shivers down my spine. So I hate to admit it, but I, I bottled it and I couldn't do it because those dudes were like, they were in <laughs> tears, bleeding noses. Like these are brothers as well. And I was like, holy heck. <laughs> um, but then, <laughs> but that's that's where I, I remember them learning. That's the first time I've seen like a proper solid hit and how it was done. Yeah. <laughs> I would have thought you would have been all about that, but nah, not back then. It's quite a funny story because up until I was like sort of broke through in senior men's rugby and actually must have started playing good rugby, my mum took notice. And my mum was my biggest support. My mum and dad, like they'd been everything. Um, and they supported me through all my age grades and always made me commit to whatever I wanted to do. And I was a late bloomer. But I got called into the Canes Academy or maybe 21s or something like that, Wellington. And mum was like, you're, you're actually a really good player now, Blair. You know, I always supported you, but you were never that good when you were younger. <laughs> I was crippled, eh? I was like, um, it was it was mixed emotion. I was like, thanks, but also like my life's been a lie, mum. Because she could never understand how I would make the reps because yeah. she reckons that there was far better players out there than me. <laughs> so, Savage. So talk me through your um, your rugby journey coming through. You talked about the Wellington Academy there. How did you end up making it into that setup? 
I think I'm definitely a bit of um, an exception to how it's normally done. I grew up um, playing a lot of Wellington reps, like 13s, uh, 16s. And I played for Silverstream first 15 for two years. And um, I never made secondary while in the secondary schools, though. But I I just loved playing rugby it was with your mates. It was good fun. It's what you do in New Zealand, right? It's yeah. like, it's it's just what it is. It's our culture. And um, and that's as far as I've probably seen it because it was, I, I, I just knew at that time there was so many talented people around and just like proper athletes who were developed at the age of 16, you know? Yeah. Um, my age grade was like uh, Big Victor Vito and Fafili Liava. Um, Beasts. Um, yeah, Colsey and, and those sort of boys. And I just didn't I just didn't think that I could ever progress any further than, uh, you know, a bit of age grade rep rugby. So I finished my first 15 rugby stuff and I was like, oh, um, all I wanted to do was just surf and skate and party with my mates. So my mate got a job as a foreman. He's my best friend, Isaac, um, in Australia on the Gold Coast. And he was like, oh, mate, it's sweet. Come over here, be my labourer, and we'll just surf and party. And I was like, perfect, <laughs> sweet. And it was like it was like the first taste of freedom, you know. I was like, I think my first paycheck was 700 Aussie dollars, and I was like, holy shit, this is right. jackpot. Yeah. Um, spent it all in one week as well on a brand new surfboard <laughs> and then uh, and a night out on the golden so I, I partied there hard for like eight months um i went to i, w- I remember going thinking oh i'll go give it a bit of rugby a go i went turn up to one club for one training and they were like oh, look you're gonna have to play for our thirds because you know it's halfway for a season i was like oh yeah well good and um I think the coach, we were doing two and one drill, like just a basic draw and pass. And I drew and pass with one guy. And the coach was like, stop, everyone stop. <laughs> and then he was like, Blair, that was perfect. Tell us what you did there. And I was like, nah, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> so that was the first and only sort of attempt at rugby in Australia. I was just like, oh, nah, nah. <laughs> um, Share your knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I fixed the guy and I passed the ball. Um, <laughs> no, so I partied hard and I surfed and I had the best time of my life, but obviously overindulging in the party scene and um, and eating a bit too few many too many pies at Smoko, I was putting on some some pounds and mum was just a bit worried of where, where my life was leading. She said, look, I know you want to travel Europe and, and all the rest of it, come home, get a trade, and then that way you can pack up and you can go do your traveling buzz. And I was like, oh, it makes sense. Because um, I probably was just just running into the ground over there at that time. And so I went home, started a trade on the roof. Um, and I was obviously put on a few pounds and thought the only way I know how to do exercise is rugby. Um, so I went down to a local club up again to play preseason, uh, just to do some preseason training, a bit of touch and some running or whatever doing some cows and uh we just sort of restructured at the club at that stage and uh, a guy come in his name was mark purdy he was a bit of a um, old boy legend from the club and he actually he went out and he got play he recruited players for the club that year and really restructured it and i remember we got adidas kit and it was her scenes we looked like the brisbane broncos and i was like we on um, but i think he, he was a bit of a mad dog back in his day and I think he just liked the way I just run around like a nutcase and had no yeah. <laughs> no real um, sort of regard for my own body. And then he was like, oh, look, do you want to come trial for the prems? And I was like, yeah, all right, I'll go have a game. So we ended up 
preseason three meaning he named me in the big squad and the club we, we picked up a few injuries in my my position i mean we had a hissing team we had like corey jane um albie matthewson uh corey Alfredo. uh at the time the, the the may brothers they were like they were some big hitters um we had joe duffy who went and played for leicester for a while um I think Tim Fairbrother was with us at the time as well. Stacked. Yeah, it was it was pretty mean club rugby, and that's what I loved about club rugby. We like at any given day back then, you could have be playing against two or three All Blacks in your opposition and stuff yeah. like that. And I used to I used to thrive on that challenge. But anyway, I'm getting carried away here. We um <laughs> we we went in uh, we won the first round that year, Swindale, and that was like historic for the club, and started getting a bit of like sort of pundits around that and um recognition i made the wellington 21s maybe or the 19s and then the 21s and um, had a couple of good seasons and then um dan cole's old man dave gallagher bring me into the wellington academy and um yeah i was again i wasn't thinking it was going to lead anywhere i was just like look they've offered me i might as well take it it's very unlikely it's gonna you know progress into anything and uh yeah in hindsight man i was the worst uh <laughs> sort of mistake that they could have made <laughs> at the time i thought i was on i thought i was hissing i turned up my first day and deadlifted 100 kgs for one and i was like we on i was like oh. i was like they must be wrapped with that <laughs> and uh that was for my one rep max and um and like I was still sourcing it up hard and partying and surfing and skating with my mates at night time. Um, like I would go out do the old student night at Sinbar with uh, all my mates who were at like uni at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't even sleep. And then I would like turn up to my weight session because I worked. I had to turn up to the first weight session. It was like start at six in the morning. True. So I would pretty much walk, walk in out <laughs> from the bars into my training sessions. <laughs> and I was like, because I just thought like, there's no chance anyway. I would, and I, I hated weights at that stage, hated all that training. I just thought it was all just a bit of a shambles. I just love rugby to play rugby. Yeah. Um, you go out on a Saturday, you bust your nut, and then you you get to party with your mates after. Um, and I remember once I turned up, one of the boys there, Sean, <laughs> and Rob, the trainer at the time, he would be on the other side of the gym. Um, and you could only see the top half of you when you're doing chins, and I'd have Sean hiding behind, crouched down. <laughs> And he'd be pushing my legs up and down. And I honestly could not do one chin up by myself. But all of a sudden, I was basically doing 20 nonstop <laughs> without busting a sweat. And Rob could just see my head keep popping up and down. And he must have been like, oh, he's made big inroads. And then when it comes to testing, I couldn't even do my body weight for one. <laughs> and then, um, so I sort of just, you know, fell through the cracks there. And rightly so. Um, then started playing Wellington B, and at the time my coach was Chris Sterling, and um, he got the DOR job at Cornish Pirates, and you had a British passport, and they needed a player over there. And, I mean, British passport is gold because you're a local player, and um, uh, you're only allowed a certain amount of foreigners, so they could they could take more of a risk with me being a local player. And um, he was like, "Look, this opportunity's come up. You know, it's 16 months or whatever it was. It was halfway through a season, and then a whole season on the back of it." And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then he knew how important it was being by the sea. And he just sent me a whole bunch of photos from Google Images. I remember them. They were like copy and paste. And um, they were of like waves there. And I was like, yeah, done. They were like golden beaches, mean little beach breaks. I was like, yeah, we're on. Pack yeah. my bags. 
and then yeah it was it was only ever supposed to be a 16 month sort of stint here with a bit of travel and then i'd go back home and probably settle in and then 13 years later i'm still here true how good because you obviously have a um, scottish passport was that a part any part of the move not really like realistically no but you always have that in the back of your head thinking like oh what if this crazy journey happened and you all of a sudden played for scotland you know like yeah and it did, <laughs> it did. um but it was never sort of a realistic goal when i left or you know it was this distant pipe dream kind of thing yeah and how did you find cornish pirates obviously you got to do a bit of surfing and stuff but how was the rugby it was definitely by far one of my most enjoyable professional contracts um yeah. You'd, some might call it almost semi-professional, but it's, the championship's very similar to like the ITM, except for the boys are probably like a few stone heavier each. <laughs> yeah. But I loved it. We we created such a good environment and um, culture at the Pirates. And you, you kind of have to because you either love it down there or you're going to hate it and you're going to leave um, because it's so small and isolated. Um, you either make the most of it, become really tight with the boys and, and get on board and what, you wanna, what we're trying to achieve, or you you just don't you just can't survive down there um so we had a bunch of guys that were we were all in the same boat we're all at the beginning of our career probably a bit of group of misfits sort of thing that we're just willing to do whatever and do it together um and if we weren't training and playing together we were out surfing fishing um just making the most of what cornwall had to offer and like you always created golden stories because it was such a small place that you you sort of have to make your own fun and it always developed as some sort of random sort of like i don't know hick town kind of story that you've created <laughs> between you and you carry those forever have you got any to share <laughs> <laughs> oh we used to like um there's a few times we used to play fifa at the boys house this is the very pg end of it yeah but we used to play fifa at the boys house and um if you ever got five nil yet there was a circuit you had to go run into a naked lap um of the town oh true um, <laughs> caught a few boys out um <laughs> like for how how small our wages on there was a lot of gambling going on down there as well was like <laughs> so there were some big swings and money movement down there that was for sure oh, I bet. but you're either eating lobster or just surviving on protein <laughs> shakes that the club was giving you <laughs> oh the life of a gambler and then you obviously moved to worcester warriors so why did that move come about uh my first year uh, my first full year i did really well and um got put in like um it's like this team that's made from all the coaches they send in their 15 from the the most votes for each position and they create a 15 for the the whole league and i I made that that year and did you um, got a got a bit of recognition and and stuff and again and I was just loving life down there. I just loved it I, and um, I got offered a contract for another premiership club but it was less money than I was already on there which was wasn't wasn't that much and because I was so happy and then we were all kind of bought into this whole the stadium's going to get built down in Cornwall and it was going to look like an Exeter kind of um, vibe it yeah. was like would create this uh, team the squad that wants to stick and create something special and take the, the club to the premiership but the stadium just kept getting cancelled and cancelled and pushed back and pushed back and and then it got to a point it's like next offer i get in the prem if i do get an offer in the prem i'm gonna have to take it because um you know my i'm getting a bit older and my window's getting smaller um and then so worcester got in a real injury crisis halfway through the year and one of my best mates who i met at 
Cole at the time, who was like my closest surfing mate, would surf all the time together. Um, he signed for Worcester earlier that year. And then Worcester just came in and was like, oh, do you want to come up here? I asked the coach at the time, Sturlo, what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea? He was like, yeah, mate, I think this is your best opportunity. You're going to get game time. Um, you need to take it now because um, it might not happen again. So that's all I needed to hear. And uh, I went up there and um, signed a year and a half up there. Things went really well for the first six months. Played nearly every game and um, got recognition again. Um that first six months and things were looking real promising for my career. And then there's the, the odd whisper, nothing major, just like people saying, Oh, yeah, he's got qualified, blah, blah, blah. And then that was as good as a guy. It was the, the following year just went the opposite way. Why was that? Um, I got an operation and then again, you know, probably how it is, Jimmy, like the coach just all of a sudden, I just wasn't what he wanted. I just didn't fit the mold. I was playing eight at the time and he wanted a big ball carrying Islander number eight. And I was very far from that. Yeah. Um, and no matter how good I would play whenever I got the opportunity, um, I, I just wouldn't get picked for the Prem. So I'd go play Europe, which is like uh, the Amlin Cup at the time. I think we went to play the Vigo, I think it was in Italy. And I got like, I think I scored four tries that game. Um, oh, wow. Like we would win those games by like 68 <laughs> points or something. You know, it was, it was, they were good fun, but. <laughs> Uh, and I'll be like, you know, any chance I'm going to get a spot this weekend in the Prem? I'm like, nah. I was like, so you're just to the point, you just, you're not going to get picked. Yeah. Um, and it was crunch time, you know. It's fine if you're local and you're out of contract and you've got your family and bits and pieces you can fall back on. But, you know, we were sitting there like contracts up here. Um, I can't even get a Prem game for myself on the shop window. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go home with my tail between my legs. It's all gone pear-shaped. And then I got an offer from Cardiff at the time, signed heads and agreements. And I was like, sweet, I'm safe. It was a good contract too. I was like, yep, two years, waiting to hear back to sign the official contract. I'm like, waiting, texting my agent, like, yo, any chance of the papers coming through? No answer. Uh, so any chance we're going to sign these papers? Finally gets back to me. Yeah, they've decided to pull your contract there, mate. Um, <laughs> you're, not a big, you're not a big enough name um to take up a foreign spot in the welsh because you had to be welsh qualified i'm sitting there going right i've got two months left to pay here and i don't have a contract i don't know what i'm gonna do yeah and it just so happened two of my best games ever played in the championship was against nottingham and the coach of nottingham at that time then became the forwards coach of london irish and um, he seen me as a seven and pictured me going to play seven and they were doubt they, they need to develop someone in that spot because um, they had a few boys coming to the end of their career and um, went and met for a sit-down and talk. Offered me a three-year. Um, oh, three years from a talk. You must, you must have blown them away with some of your words. <laughs> oh, mate, I was on thesaurus all morning just <laughs> locking something in. I was like, we on. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like going into that London Irish environment? Well, I think like it's just like everything else that's happened in my career. Nothing's been handed to me. Um, sometimes it's on my uh, it's it's from my own doing, making things harder for myself. But also, it's also where I thrive as well. Is sort of always having to prove myself. Um, and I enjoy that. I enjoy. The, I think we spoke about it a while ago. Um, just that excitement when you turn up somewhere, no one knows who you are, and you've got to prove a point, and you've got to earn your spot, and you want to get on the boys, and you want them to respect you, and 
you know, you, you just go handy at everything and, but also trying to balance it with not being the nose. <laughs> it's a tough balancing act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you've obviously been there for nine years now. Um, do you still feel like you have that um, pressure on you to perform or train? Because obviously when, you, when you've been there that long, you can start to lose that little bit of edge. I'd say more than ever, bro. Um, I think that the minute I stop having that, would be the minute I hang out my boots. So there's no way I want to just be there um, collecting a paycheck. You know, I, I just, I don't think it would feel right for me. And the prime example is when Eli came along. They, we had that week off and then Eli, I think, arrived on the Thursday. So I got from the Thursday to like the Sunday to sort of get, get things settled with, um, he arrived on the Tuesday, sorry, but we were out of the hospital on the Thursday and then we had the weekend to sort of settle in at home and stuff. I went back to training on the Monday and um, I was on the bench. 100% the right call by the coaches, like lack of sleep, um, you know, this whole new experience and and my mind's probably elsewhere with my kid, but it's just underneath, just seething, just like, <laughs> like <laughs> just like, I just, I just wanted to go around training, start buckling people because I was just like, nah, just like, you know, and then I'm just having these moments of sort of these sobering moments and I'm just like, you're 34, you've played like over 100 games for this club. What more do you have to prove? You played for your country, you've done, I'm like, but it's just, it still wouldn't, I still couldn't shake that feeling. Yeah. I'm just like, nah, I've got to start, got, you know, like, and you, you know, like, and it's, it's only, it was only burning away for like a couple, couple of days. days. And like, I a hundred percent deep down, I knew it was the right call. And I, but it's just, nothing will stop that burning desire just to always, um, you know, be starting or be at, be at the top of your game kind of thing. The other thing I remember about you is you've already spoken about a little bit, but was the red mist. Sometimes you'd get quite aggressive at training you'd fire up there was always one sort of character in the team who used to be really good at winding up brendan mckibben do you want to talk about any stories you you and him had together i would say that brendan mckibben is the starting nine in the world 15 of noises and knowing how to get under people's skins eh? like he has got the talent for it um you, we all know as rugby players as especially as you get into the sort of um full-time professional stuff you have a thing it's called like sort of shoulders on or, or two hand touch and when we're not doing contact so a sort of an, an agreement that if someone clearly shows that they would have marked you in a game you take a knee you place the ball uh you form a ruck you play the phase but kibbo ran sort of a line step i blatantly to this day 100 percent, two hands probably two shoulders a knee the works full body there and he just continued to run through the line and mugged me off. And I just remember chasing him going, I fucking touched you. And he had this way of like laughing and just, I don't know. He just, oh, I can't put my finger on it. But it was just this, this noises, the things he would say. And I chased him up the field. Um, we managed to get the ball back. And then one of the boys passed that. He intercepted and he started running down the pitch. And I started chasing him. And then I flew in from the side, off my feet, tried to sh shoulder him in the head, and I missed him. And the coach at the time called um, advantage and said, Blair, that'll be a yellow card, which then added just pure gasoline to the fire. 
I ran around. All I had was this like tunnel vision looking for Kibbo for the for the next phase. He went and sat on the short side. I shot out the line. He looped the ball over the top of me. Um, landed it because of my shooting out. We put a dent in our um, in our D line, and they ended up scoring. And then he laughed in my face, and I was done. I basically had to walk off into the showers and go turn it on cold and just sit under it for about ten minutes. It's just like. Just like everything that could have gone more wrong that fall into his hands did. Um, yeah. And then he had peppered me on the golf course as well. <laughs> oh, the red mist. Have you got ways of handling that these days or you still, do you still struggle with it? No, I'm, I'm about to say I'm way better. I still have my moments. No, I, I have like just as I got older and, um, it took me a long, I'd say it took 80% of my career for me to find a way to uh, control it. But there will still be a certain point where I can't contain the red mist. It's, it's going to come out and yeah. I'm going to do something stupid. I'm going to regret it instantly. <laughs> and then I'm going to get absolutely peppered by boys on social media for it as well. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> The other thing that um, happened in your nine-year stint at London Irish was two relegations. So um, do you want to talk about those two tough times for the club? Yeah, they were tough times for the club. Um, and it was tough being the club that I love. It was tough being a part of a team that created the relegation. Um, but it was the first one. There was It was full of optimism. It was like, okay, we're rebuilding, yeah. Um, and I was sweet. I played in the championship. I, I knew where the positives were in, in the league. And um, it was awesome opportunity for the young boys to get some serious game time in the first team. And um, definitely made the most of it my first year and just got on with it. And and I, I, I was part of the, the team that got relegated, but I wanted to be part of the team that got the club back to where they belong. And, and that happened. You know, we went down, came back up. But then the second time, that was tough, you know. Um, from the first relegation of sort of where the end of my uh, international stuff started, um, whether it played a part in it or whatever, it took its toll. And I just realized how much I missed the intensity of the premiership. I love the intensity of the premiership. I, I love the intensity of top flight rugby. And, yeah. um, as much as I have mad respect for the championship and it's that, that was, that gave me the opportunity to sort of start my career properly. I, I, I was at it points in my career as well where I was just like oh don't really like I, I wish I didn't have to waste it in a year in the championship um, but again we just cracked on and did try to find the most like the positives and again it was a lot of uh, our young boys thrived as well and, and now our starters and sort of big dogs at the moment um, but you, you were part of that one weren't you Jimmy? I was part of the first one yeah and after the second one I, oh, the first I one. actually left I, I felt a little bit like you I I felt like I'd done my time in the championship, so I was, I was really... you pulled the parachute cord. You were like, "See ya, I'm out of here." <laughs> That's classic, Jimmy. <laughs> Every man for themselves. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to Japan. I'm going to click that yen, baby. I'm gone. <laughs> yeah, it was always, it was quite tough to get out of that act too, actually. But one other thing that you did was. Um, you also won the premiership, which is something that not many people do. And you did it the same year that London Irish were relegated. So um, you were loaned out to Saracens. 
Um, talk me through what it was like there, what it was like in the environment. What was the difference going from the worst team in the comp to the best team in the comp? For whatever reason this happened, it was it was bizarre. Like You know how bizarre it was. You see me, you pulled out of the gym that day, didn't you? Yeah, Remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. So my granddad fell ill and the club were really good and gave me like 10 days um, to go home and um, see him and, and say my farewells and all the rest of it. Um, and then I came back and uh, it was Brendan Venter at the time who had close ties to Saracen, who was part of the actual Saracen original movement. And um, I was in the gym shifting massive tin like I always do. <laughs> yeah, and, we were uh, together, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were on the big platform. It was me, you and Ben Franks, I believe. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh Brendan Venter just said oh, I can have a word outside and I, I I was like okay here we go um at the time we had Max um Connor Gilson and uh Shatsy was at seven so we had three sevens that were all playing really well and and like, I can't just go home and come back and expect to, to play again straight away um, so I thought he was just going to say, like, look, we're going to give you a couple of weeks to get back and, you know, get back to fitness and get back in the squad. And and at the time, he actually said to me, he was like, yeah, you're right now, you're like our third or fourth string um, seven. And I was like, hmm, whoa, really <laughs> falling from the graces here. Uh, <laughs> Lots changed in like, two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what happened in that 10 days? Um <laughs> Did I lose a leg? <laughs> uh, and, then, um, and he goes, yeah. Do you want to go play for Saracens? And I was just like, shook my head about four times. I was like, huh? I was like, what do you mean? Do I want to go play for Saracens? And um, we were struggling at the time. We were in the relegation battle. Mm. And I said to him, he was like, look, no, no, no. It's just a pure business decision. It's We need you to get rugby. They're in dire needs and you're the only player that like I want to give that opportunity to and I said I feel a bit weird about it I don't want the squad to think that I'm just ditching them you know like Parachute. I love this club <laughs> and pull the court pull the court <laughs> that's um, classic you though yeah I just had Jim, I just had Jimmy whispering pull the court pull the court <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so it was just this random sort of agreement. Um, it was, I go there and I play as long as I needed, and I was going straight into the playing team. And at any point, London Irish could bring me back. Yeah. And I said, Look, I'm, I don't feel comfortable with this. I just don't want the boys to think that. I'm, and they're like, No, 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 I'll explain it to everyone to make sure it's purely for best in everyone's interest that you go get some game time and that you're still at this club and we'll bring you back when you need. So I was like, Okay, cool. And I was like, it would actually be, I've been in London Irish for about six years at that point. Um, and I was like, it'd be actually good to sort of get another look into another club and maybe bring back some ideas. And um, I went to Ceres and I loved it. Um, and I had such a great time there. It was really nice to go from being sort of like part of the sort of senior team and, um, you know, um, um, Thesaurus. Like soldiers. Thesaurus. Let me hang on a sec. I'll just get my thesaurus on. Um, I can't think of the word. I haven't, I'm, I'm freaking out here. But... Um, 
where I could just go, I could just play. Like I had no expectations. No one really knew. I didn't have to play any other part except for I'm just there to play. And um, if Irish want me back, I can go back. But ended up learning so much there, um, not just about rugby, but about the leadership side and seeing people like Brad Barrett and um, all those senior boys that have been there a long time and, and how they do things and come across how they deliver to the boys and sort of lead by example. I actually learned a lot on, on, on that front and I think that's helped me in the, certainly the last couple of years to develop that side of um, being a part of a senior group. And um, as well as that, it was we had a hell of a trip away to Valencia on the source for like four days <laughs> mid-season. I mean, that's out the gate stuff, but uh, they do it right, I'm telling you. Sure. And do you remember what happened that time? No, talk to me. They're like, they give you sort of a heads up, like, all right, we've, we've got a team social lined up in three weeks. And then sort of a week out from it, like, right, location X has been sort of confirmed. And then about like two days before you, you got, you play the game, two days before you play that game, I'm like, okay, you're off to Valencia for three days, three nights, four days. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting, I'm getting a phone call like the week before I get a dick. During that period that I was at Ceres, uh, Brendan Vinter got the sack and Declan Kidney took over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, and he rang me up when he first took over. He's like, look, we're going to leave you there. You're settled in there. Uh, we're okay for sevens at the moment. He goes, but I, I think this is one of the craziest deals I've ever come across. He was just blown away by it. He's like, you're supposed to be our starting seven, our international <laughs> seven, and they've just let you, they've let you go in the middle of a relegation battle. Like, I can't get over this. And um, I was like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's like, it was pretty loose. Um, and he was like, look, we're going to keep you there because we've got plenty of sevens. But, you know, the minute we need you, we're bringing you back. And I was like, yeah, that was always the deal anyway. Um, like three weeks before this Valencia trip, I think uh, Shets went down. He rang me up. He goes, look, we're down to two sevens. You're going to have to come. Uh, just want to make you aware. The week before we go to Valencia, another seven goes down. I'm like, He's like, look, you're probably gonna have to come back. I'm like, oh man, like I just want to go on this trip. I don't, I don't care. I, I'm happy to come back, like really, but I want to go on this trip so bad. <laughs> like, I need this trip. And then so we played the Saturday. We were flying out on the Sunday morning, like four in the morning on the Sunday or something. Or we were on the bus to the airport at four in the morning. I get a phone call from David Pace at times. I like, bro, that's it. Um, I think Max was the last injury or whatever it was, whatever order it was. Um, I was like, oh shit, I'm definitely getting the fucking shepherd's crew. I'm gonna have to come back. I was like, so I turned my phone off. I turned my phone off until I got on that airplane, and then because um, I knew I was getting the call, and uh, I won this trip. Anyway, I got no phone call to say that I'm coming back. Anyway, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe maybe they figured something out. But it was we had a massive bender the first night. Got on the steam the second night, and I'm like fully send and um, cut. And uh, I get a phone call, and it's Dick, and I just I just don't pick it up. I'm like, I can't answer this. I can't even see the phone, let alone talk on it. And then I managed to text, and I just said, hi, Dick, I'm sorry, but we went to Valencia on a social. I'm pretty buckled right now. I better call you in the morning when I'm sober. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, do so. So I'm like, great night, second night, amazing night. Then I called Dick and he's like, oh, yeah, look, we need you back. you got to play this weekend. Um, 
I'm like, yep, sweet ass, no worries. Yeah, that was always the situation. Had to come back. We fly back on Thursday. It was a Sunday game that we were playing that week. He's like, cool, I'm going to try to organize your flight back out. I'm like, didn't really make sense, but I was like, oh, all right, whatever you need, sort me a fly and fly me back. Anyway, he doesn't get back to me, and I'm sitting there all day. All the boys are going full send again. Um, and that day we were going to the Valencia football, and I'm sitting there in my hotel room waiting for confirmation. I'm just like, right, nothing's coming to this. So I go meet the boys, end up just necking basically a vodka, Red Bull, whatever they were, and then just went full Cindy Lala again with them, went to the football, had another boomer of a night, like went to some pub at night, it was all this, it was like, it was class, they had the best time ever, got on the flight back, had to go up to St Albans where I was set up for camp, pack my bags, head back to the club, turn up, start, um, you know, give all the boys high fives and back. Remember who we played that Sunday? No. It was Saracens. Oh, So sure. I just went on a four-day bender in Valencia. I fly back. <laughs> I flew back, go to training. Then I have to get my mind prepped to play against them. You know, nothing bonds you more than a four-day yeah. session. Yeah. And um, so I remember running out that tunnel. We all looked at each other. We all had the, all these stories and everything that went down. It was like, it was unbelievable. And then you're at the bottom of the rucks just like, I'm just fully centered with you the last four days, and now I'm playing against you at my home ground at my old club. It was just the most bizarre, random sort of turn of events. Um, but yeah, that's my career. True, good times. Another part of your career yeah. that I wanted to touch on was obviously your international career playing for Scotland. Um, yeah, so when I first turned up to London Irish, obviously not much of a name behind me at all. It's probably the hardest I've ever worked at preseason. I turned up and like incredibly fit, and I, I I just did fitness the whole off season, but I did no sort of muscle gain or anything, and I was in good shape. I shape, I was lean, and I could run till the cows come home. But I was like ninety three kgs, and I turned up, and the first thing Glenn Delaney, who signed me, and signed me thinking that I was like the hundred and ten kg player ball carrier that he first played against. Just looked at me and goes, "Where's the rest of you, mate?" <laughs> so, um, so I did the fitness test, smashed the fitness test. I think I got the best time in the team, and they're like, "That's the last you're doing for the rest of the preseason." And I was the hardest thing I had to do was weight gain, and I just did double weights every day, and was just like, had to just beat my calorie deficit. Like it was 35 degrees in London, I'm eating starchy as potatoes and steak and gravy any calories i could get in there at the time um but i picked up an injury during that um sort of my running and we we're doing some drills and i did my calf so i was going to miss out on the, the first prem game but they were going to do a return to play game which we had is you know how it is a league they have a thing called the a league it's basically like your academy boys slash um anyone that's not in the 23 that weekend gets a chance to play on a monday yeah and um, we had a guy at the time called Kieran Lowe, um, who was like a huge prospect for the future. He was, he was an incredible athlete, and he was Scottish qualified, but he was English. And the coaches come down to talk to him, and they were going to try to blood him into the Scotland sort of setup. So the two Scotland coaches come down at the time, and our head coach Brian Smith said, "Oh, look, we've got this other guy. He's Scottish passport. His mum's from Scotland." And they're like, oh, "Okay." And uh, it was the Monday night, and they're like, "Yeah, he's, he's playing tonight. If you want to watch him." And I was so hungry to play that game. And like those, you know how those games are, they're free for all. Like, it's just like, you're basically trying to state your position on the prim side or the, the senior side. And 
I was out there doing all sorts. I was, I think I did a midfield bomb, did a little chip and chase. I was like, I was flying out the D line trying to buckle anyone, like razzle dazzle out the back to no one to the floor. <laughs> but I think they enjoyed my energy anyway, so they were like, oh yeah, and they gave me a message to look, we're going to keep an eye on you. <laughs> and that was sort of how I got my sort of toe in the door, and um, had a good run of games with London Irish and really started building some sort of name and um, they got me up to the autumn test that that year and I never managed to get a game but I got to train with the squad it was pretty exciting um, and then following from that I played Scotland A one cap for them and that means that I lose all my qualifications I think at the time I was qualified for um, five countries oh, was, yeah Scotland New Zealand um, England Canada and the Cook Islands. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. I'll use my qualifications, whatever. And then I just went like phone silence for, for a long time. And Vern Cotter took the role. And um, I was like, oh, no. I've got a cameo in the Scotland A team. And I've lost all qualification. And I mean, that's money in the premiership. Like if you're um, England qualified, that's money to the club. So they're, they're more likely to top up your contract as well. So I was like, oh, blowing it. But then Vern took over and got me in on the summer tour and now made my first, uh, got my first cap against USA uh, in America, which was epic. A lot of people don't really um, picture you as being Scottish, but obviously your mum's Scottish and you're a proud Scottish man. So um, how were the fans and how was your teammates going into that when you were first picked on that side? That was a big challenge for me. Eh? Like um, you get a lot of people that come over here and they'll either they'll be based in Edinburgh or Glasgow and they'll do the three year buzz and they'll get qualified through that and which I, which is fine you know and and they've earned their stripes and they they and rightly so they should be able to represent the country that they've they've done that for and um, but people look probably looked at me a bit of a sham and that clearly I look very Scottish and sound very Scottish <laughs> but <laughs> but my 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 Scottish roots are really strong you know I was raised when uh, my granddad like five minutes around the corner from my house and he was a strong Scotsman and very proud and carried all his traditions from from um, back in Scotland to New Zealand and they were always big enough big in our upbringing and my mum's proud Scotsman and my uncles and um, I always felt quite connected to that that side and um, always felt like I, I was Scottish and but it's hard for people to believe it they don't see it and um, and, you know, I always felt like I was trying to prove something to them that I was. And it was it was always a constant battle for me trying to say, like, oh, you yeah, know, my mum's Scottish. And, yeah. But it was epic when I played the All Blacks for the first time at Murrayfield. And uh, my mum came over and went to her village where she was born, uh, which is a little village called Blair Moor. Um, that's where I got my name from. We went to the uh, – it's tiny, bro. I'm telling you, like, a couple hundred houses. And sure. it's got one little boutique cafe thing with some art on the walls and one, maybe one dairy, and that's it. I went to this cafe and we explained the situation. This is where my mum was born, and um, they were like, "Oh, it's epic!" And then I beca- that became huge for that village. You know, it was like they became um, they called me uh, Blair's son, like the the son of the village and stuff like that. So they were pretty wrapped. And whenever I was st- whenever I played for Scotland, I'd be in the local rag, and it was a big deal. So that made it really special for me. And if no one's seen that, it didn't matter. I had that little sort of attachment and, and that was enough for me but um it, was, it is always a battle um mm. trying to prove that it, it means a lot to you and talk me through your um all black the game against the all blacks you obviously just mentioned it then but 
Um, that must have been pretty crazy. I know you were playing against a few other Wellington boys who you went through the academy with. It was epic. It was the um, my greatest memory, um, probably in rugby. And um, my mum came over a long way for that. And my um, my uncle came over from New Zealand as well, who's Scottish. Um, and obviously, you got lots of people who travel that you know from New Zealand might be based in London. They all went to the game as well. And uh, I remember just walking out and they turn off all the lights, all the floodlights, and it's nothing but people's cell phones. It's like 70,000 cell phones got their lights on and you just walk out and it's like this mist in the air because it's in the um, it's in the autumn tests and it's sort of like, I guess this epic sort of fog sort of surrounds the stadium and the fireworks have just gone and it's just smoke everywhere and you line up against the hucker and sort of the atmosphere is just epic and your dream of growing up in New Zealand is to play for the All Blacks so the next best thing for me the next equal thing is um, standing against the hucker and playing against the All Blacks and it was even more epic because uh, I think Dane Cole is one of the one of the greatest players um, especially hookers to wear the jersey but He's one of the greatest blokes I've ever sort of come across in the game, and um, to be for him to be involved in that game, he was only on the bench, and also Jeremy Thrush and Victor Vito who were all my year, and uh, it was a very surreal moment for me. But it was it was epic, and I ended up swapping jerseys with um, with Thrushy because uh, Sam came. I wasn't big enough name for <laughs> to swap jersey with him, but. Um, <laughs> um, but man, Thrushy got man to match that game, and he swapped jersey with me. And, uh, and the next day, I caught up with Colsey and those boys for a coffee, and ended up giving Colsey some humble Macron gears, and he gave me all this flash as Adidas, uh, all that stuff, and I was like wrapped. So yeah. it was special. It was very special on so many levels for me. Dane Coles, what a lad! What a lad he is. And then talk to me about the um, Rugby World Cup camp because I, I know you were you were named in the big squad to play at the Rugby World Cup, and then um, you obviously didn't make the final squad. So talk to me about that, that process. So, so like through all those uh, autumn tests, um, I went into two six, two six nations and a uh, summer tour. And through all of that, I, since the minute I got capped, I started every game possible bar one, which I was on the bench for um, leading into the World Cup camp. And so you're, I was feeling pretty confident I'd at least be in the sort of squad, the World Cup squad. Um, but it was the hardest sort of rugby environment I've ever been involved with. And it's probably my biggest learning from international rugby, especially, is like you become so disposable. Um, mm. And you've got to be very thick-skinned. And like even some of the hardest men out there have their, their mental battles of how you can be treated in these sort of environments. And I mean, we went into up to the Pyrenees and did like altitude training, like these uh, army style sort of setup. And we were training in this field, and it was Mo Farah was training for the Olympics, and he would be running on around the outside on the um, the turf track. He's a freak, by the way. Like it was just, it was pretty incredible just to watch him. Yeah. But I mean, boys were like running in these fitness drills and like horizontally spewing while they were still in mid drill, just like whoa, just everywhere. Just because of the altitude. Yeah, altitude and the training was just clean off. And then we had to walk up this mountain and we got to the top of this mountain with nothing but a tea towel. We were thinking, sure, this is just a joke or just a trick. And we get to the top, everyone's starving. They bring out these four rabbits and um, we had to sort of kill, skin the rabbits, cook the rabbits. And then um, 
yeah, man, it was like fully intense. And I remember Jim Hamilton got in trouble because he he brought that story out. Um, and Vern Cotter got in a lot of trouble for by like the um, <laughs> RSPCA or something over these ways. Yeah, it all kicked off after that, eh? <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeez. Um, I mean, Jim Jim Hamilton's a hell of a character to have involved with you, but. Um, and like I, I spent like two months away from home while I was that was like I think we did ten days up there at altitude and we spent like another six weeks in in Scotland and all the exiles had to stay in like these um, apartments and sort of yeah sort of your roommate in your, your apartment and I worked my ass off as as much as I could and and then uh, John Hardy Hardhorse oh, um, yeah he was what a guy just one of the best guys as well like. Love him to bits, and that was the hardest bit. He was my position, yeah. um, and he was just such a top guy. Me and him, like, <laughs> we spent a lot of time at casinos because we literally lived <laughs> on the back of a casino. So, like, <laughs> we both had our demons on the roulette table, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, so we bonded in the casino, um, <laughs> but so like the boys didn't really know too much of John Hardy, but we're like, well they've rushed this guy through. He didn't come to France and do the altitude training. And we had this trial game. It was basically like probables versus probables, you know, the old school style ones. And, yeah. and Vern was like, you know, he's not walking into the squad. He's not by no means. He's still got to earn his spots. Turned up to this 15 or 15 and he just had this blinder. Eh? And uh, I think I'd been rotated out at that stage and I was watching on the sideline and he came on and <laughs> everything he did just turned to gold. Eh? It was like, he was just smoking people, turning the ball over, doing like out the back door, breakaways, all sorts, tip-ons like inside and dudes are making breaks. And I'm just going, I'm done. I'm, done. <laughs> I'm just like, why the hell did I go up there? Why do I go do horizontal spewing? No, just what a waste of time. <laughs> and I, to be fair, I thought, no, surely I was trying to work out the position. I thought, no, there's still a slot for both of us in the squad and, I got the phone call from Vern and he was like, look, you know, you're next on the, on the list to come into it. And I, I just remember it was sort of, you know, when you want something so much in your life, I was like, this would have, this would have just been the dream yeah. come true. If you could play in the world cup, um, you know, and you sort of apply this pressure, even though it's not, you apply this pressure that it means not just to you, but your family and all the rest of it and, and what, what it does for everyone around you. And, and I was just like this out of body experience when I got the um the the cut, you know, didn't it? And I was like, yeah. And I was probably the best thing I could have done at that time was just say, look, I don't agree with your decision, Vern, but I respect it, and I'll always I'll miss the phone call away if you need me. And I'm glad I finished things on those terms because obviously I, I got called back in later. But after that phone call, I remember just walking out that flat. I walked into this Belgian bar. Belgium or German or something, and I just pointed to the tap, and it was like this beer it was like twelve point five percent, and I just chinned the beer, and I just gave him the glass, and I go, and it was like midday on, it was like probably like one o'clock on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, you know, and this guy's just looking at me bizarrely, like this guy's just chinned the twelve point five in the middle of the day by yourself, um, yeah, yeah, I was by myself, and. um I just put down the glass again and I said another. <laughs> I chinned like six of them and I just floated back to, I was just like, <laughs> I was buckled and I had to go back and I had to pack up like my two months of gear that I took with me and yeah. get on a flight back to London from Edinburgh. And now I got on the plane and then 
ordered gin and tonics all the way down for an hour and got off the train and I was a bumbly mess and poor Rachel was like <laughs> she just fixed me up and she was crying because she could just see how wiped and disgusted I was and yeah. the one thing I remember the most was I lost my iPad on the plane oh. <laughs> <laughs> devastated whoever's got that geez they'll find some crook stuff on there but no no it wasn't Mike Coman's iPad <laughs> <laughs> Mike Coman's side would be locked up somewhere <laughs> through his in the middle of the ocean <laughs> <laughs> oh but man that's rough about Scotland eh? it must have been heartbreaking so um, mentally how did you how did you sort of deal with it you, you've talked about just going straight on the booze but um, did you have any way to sort of get past that it took a it took a big knock on me for a long time um so I ended up going back to the club and just so happened that oh my, the club was in the middle of pre-season going back into um, getting ready for the domestic league and the World Cup was in, in England, in Britain. And um, the club said to me, look, take 10 days. You've had a big, it's like, this is a massive emotional, physical roller coaster. You need to go sort of sort yourself out. So I was like, sweet. And then so I booked a flight. Rachel actually said to me, look, you need to get home. Go to, this is your chance to go see your friends and family and you know it might help clear your head I was like yeah I think that's what's needed so I booked a flight but the flight was in a couple of days and basically for the minute I got told that um, I didn't make the squad I just went full send and just went on it every as every day every night I could I was like right. just just lost today eh? I was just like and probably makes it in there with some other like painkillers and all the rest of it just trying to get past it and and um, self-destructing pretty much and I went home and did more of the same and um, I just remember everyone just going like mate I can't even you're so lost in it like some of my closest friends were looking in my eyes and just like mate just a blank space in there you need to go sort yourself out so I sort of came to and um, came back to the club um, I was an absolute mess just because I'd been on the source for so long and barely done any exercise and I uh, did a couple of guilt sweat outs and that was about it. I got back to the club and I was like, right, cool. Reset the focus. Let's get back. Let's get stuck in. Um, and I'll just give them my all for my club. And um, I was sort of starting to come right again. And But I was still a bit of a shower of a man because, you know, you can only send it so far and it's without having a crash and burn moment. And um, I was in that sort of crash and burn phase trying to turn the corner to get back on the up. And uh, I get a phone call from Bird. <laughs> so, Mate, we're bringing you back into the squad. I'm sure. like, sweet. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like the sh- shell of my former self, which was 10 days ago. <laughs> oh, like, 10 days. Holy. Like, yeah, it was like, you know, within that 10 days, um, I'd gone from Edinburgh, seen it there, came back to London, a couple of nights out here, flown all the way to New Zealand. I uh, was only on the ground for about seven days and flew back. Flew back. It was probably about twelve days by the time you include the flights. Yeah. And I just, so I was wrapped. that I got called back in. Is the same time just fear of God sent up me. I was just like, and then he said to me, "Look, you probably won't play, um, but you're back in the squad as cover." And I was like, "Sweet." That get that that gave me a bit of like relief that I probably won't play that week. I was like, "Sweet, that's good." So I go up there. Um, 
I sort of get rushed through press. I get rushed through like getting all my kit, quick rundown and all the plays and, and what's been going on. This is probably five days out before the game against South Africa. And um, he goes, yeah, well done, mate. You're going to start against South Africa. That's oh shit and um but you know the fear gets you through some stuff Jimmy <laughs> and uh I actually <laughs> I actually managed to string together a bit of performance that game and I think I made like 23 or 24 tackles oh, against World the Cat biggest record. knuckers you'll find yeah <laughs> just big box just running down your channel and like I could barely walk the next day but um I was pretty happy that I got through that actually and I started to enjoy a bit more after that, and I didn't get named for the following week, which was Samoa, which was a do-or-die match. Um, And we didn't perform that well. That was perceived as our best team in the squad at the time that they put out that day. And we made the quarterfinals against Australia, and I got named in that, and that was huge. I was like, whoa, this is a real swing of events since um, (laughs) getting cut from the squad. So I'm starting in the World Cup quarterfinal against Australia as I sold out Twickenham. I was just like, we on. And then, obviously, you know, the, the ordeal we went through that with the, the dodgy call by the ref and, and the, what could have been sort of moment. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other swings of rugby. Jeez, what a story. What a crazy international journey. Yeah, obviously, you're, you're 34 years old now, um, still carving it up for London Irish. What, other, what are your plans post-rugby? I know you've probably still got a few more years left, but have you got much of a plan in place? Um, I'd probably... We, we have a great play development system over here called the RPA. And I, I think it's fantastic, to be fair. Um, for what you pay and what you get, I don't think you can beat it in the world with rugby. Um, and I just wish I took more advantage of it earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I always have thought those sort of things. And the more I, I did, no matter how small it was, the better I felt, the more confident I, I felt about preparing for life after rugby and, um, I did my diploma in barbering at London School of Barbering. Um, and I've been doing some, even things like Excel. You do these little Excel courses and uh, work out the formulas, as they call it, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> You'd be good at that. <laughs> uh, I know my 36 times table because of the roulette wheel, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm going to come across so bad on this uh, <laughs> podcast, aren't I? Um, <laughs> You're a lad. <laughs> the, yeah, and um, and then I've always loved, growing up with like my mates who always surfers and skaters and stuff, it was all about getting as many tricks as you could or photos, like nailing the trick and um, or surfing, like catching, scoring some epic days um, in the water or and creating edits and... Um, and I always, I always loved that that process and that creative process and, and making things look cool. And so that sort of led into me wanting to capture more when I travelled and got like my first DSLR camera, Canon and things, and started messing around with photography and, and video work. And that sort of led me. And then some sort of some stuff popped up on social media and, and my Vimeo account. And then all of a sudden I was doing little bits and pieces. We live in the digital age for like, so it was quite sought after for point, people sort of looking for a point of difference. Um, so I started doing bits and pieces for gyms and products and uh, like a lot of boys like start out companies. Yeah. Um, they're all trying to make it obviously. And, and I, I love that. I love seeing the boys uh, preparing for life after rugby like yourself with, with uh, what a lad and 
Um, you know, we had um, we had boys doing gin companies, coffee companies, and I'd, I'd, whatever I could do to help those guys and also help um, me develop my skills as well. And so I'm sort of working along those lines of media work at the moment. And, um, I'll just try to try stay on top of anything, just to be prepared for when it comes to an end. And you've set up a company called BC Edits, is that right? And you want to give them a shout out? I know lots of Waterlad listeners will be keen as to go check out some of their work. Yeah, so I'm not the best on social media and, and that's a skill I need to develop and be more consistent. But I've started up an Instagram page and at the moment it's just a few stills. But what I'll start doing is posting some work that I've done in the past for companies. And so it's BC underscore edits underscore UK. Um, that's my... Uh, Instagram feed and um, I'll link that to a website that's sort of under construction at the moment um, that I just want to put a, a few more final touches on that before I launch it um, but yeah give it a follow and if there's anything you, you're interested in just drop slide into my DMs apparently they say Jimmy and um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you know if I can be of help jeez <laughs> oh, you're a good salesman <laughs> get me get me in on that <laughs> anyway as always, we've gone to the Instagram in the DMs for some questions. And Blair Cowan, Steve has come up trumps with so many questions. So I'll just read a few. Um, first question, best moment at London Irish? Um, there's a couple that sort of just pop instantly. There was uh, an away win to Saracens when uh, George Stewington was co uh, captain at the time. And you know, the monster they are, we were serious underdogs in that game and it was just a good sort of physical, gritty game and um, and we had a great night out after. But um, probably one with you, Jimmy, was when just after we'd been relegated and we got promoted, it was the first game at the famous sort of um, London Four. At, I think it was close to a sellout at Twickenham. And um, yeah, we, we beat Quinns in the opener with the bonus points and it was just like, mad optimism flying off the back of that and yeah. uh, you know me it's a TV game managed to steal man of the match and I remember how sour Mike Coleman was because he thought he was a guarantee shoeing for it and apparently I robbed him yeah. that's right I remember driving home with him though he was filthy tail between the legs couldn't believe he had got man of the match because he won some big collisions that day but you you were just as always into everything because of the TV game so you've, you've got some sort of record with Man of the matches and TV games, though, eh? Like, you get it pretty much every time the game's on TV. It's just like any veteran. They always get the sort of the sympathy sort of, um, <laughs> you know, you're doing well. You know the one that always gets me, eh? is like, you get me out of the match because you got through a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sweet. That's all good. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. No one stood out today. Who made the most tackles? Yeah. Who made the most passive tackles, Callum? Let him have it. Oh, good stuff. Okay. Um, do you remember when you had uncapped mobile phone calls at fifth form? Any memorable calls? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's throwing me a bit, that question. Um, back in the day when I was on, you know, the old Nokia 5120s, yeah. I got a phone call from... Oh, I can't remember what the uh, the company was, but they were that was when the first O two seven was introduced and the first internet on the cell phone. Whoa, I'm going back. I'm old. And they asked if I wanted to do a trial 
and I was 16 at the time, and um, they asked me my age, and for some reason, I don't even know why, I just said 18. <laughs> I didn't even know if it meant anything. I just, I just threw that one out there. I was like, well, I'm 18, and like, okay, yeah, you're qualified. I was like, yeah, send it to my mum's house. Um, <laughs> so they sent me out this phone, and I had unlimited everything. Like I could phone any call, any number. Um, so we used to ring all these 0900 numbers and at lunchtime, all the boys would put on speaker and we used to ring the six lines. Oh yeah. And, nice um, up. one of the boys would just put it on and start, start, <laughs> start pretending. It's a bizarre thing really in hindsight. I haven't even thought about it. Like no one's mentioned this since I was probably at school. So it's a pretty random question, but yeah, that was we're it. The, we're in the six lines. Yeah, that was it. Oh, good stuff. Okay. Next question is. Is it true you first spoke to Ollie Hassel Collins after his man of the match performance? <laughs> no, this story comes because I um, took a photo with him and I put on my social media and everyone was really blown back that I was sort of he was quite young and just sort of just breaking through the academy and they were like, You associated with him on social media? Like, of course I knew who he was. It was just I think it's been obviously a bit of spice throwing in just because I put him on my social media platform. Do you talk to him though? Yeah. I've yeah. I've like um some of the best passes in my career have gone to him and he scored oh, some epic tries off the back of it. Oh. So I feel we created a connection. <laughs> I say that. I basically passed him a ball and he broke three tackles single-handedly <laughs> and then goes and puts in the corner. But I always say it's because of my pass. <laughs> always is. Okay, another one. No, he, no. He's a really good boy and got a lot of time for him. Yeah, good kid. Okay, another one. This is about you talking to them too. Why do you only speak to me when no one is around? This is from... What a lad guest Jacob Atkins. Um, because it's Jacob Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got to protect my rep as best as possible. I've got so much time for Jacob as long as no one's around. <laughs> <laughs> he also mentioned about you bullying him, being next to him in the locker, put, <laughs> taping up his bag and <laughs> jacket in the pool. <laughs> what's your no, side of the story <laughs> this is the funny thing like uh so we had a pool in the middle of the the changing rooms and um jacob just kept putting the shit on my side of the locker and i said jacob i swear to god if you put your, if i catch your shit here one more time i'll throw in your bag in the pool and he thought it was spice and then i was like I walk in and it's just scattered across my thing. So I went and put a weight in his bag and um, I got a whole bunch of <laughs> uh, rubbish bags and I take them up. But I think I, I put like three layers of rubbish bag so it wouldn't get wet. Yeah. So I biffed it in the pool and then he came and he was just like, I was really stoked that you like, you obviously care about me because you've wrapped it three times. <laughs> so, <laughs> So our relationships to the extent that because I've like triple wrapped it before I've thrown his work bag into the pool, that he took that as a sign of respect. <laughs> oh. oh, that's good stuff. Okay, two more questions. Have you ever been to the Whitstable Oyster Festival? <laughs> yes, I have. And it's epic. And if you're from Kent or Canterbury and you haven't, then you're a sham. You should go to that festival. How is and it? you know who you are. Hugh Jones. Oh, I'm calling you out. Come on, Hugh. Get to the festival. <laughs> okay, last question. What's the best piece of advice that you've got from your dad? 
um, had some absolutely crackers over the years, but he'd always say to me and my brothers, um, before we'd go play a game of rugby, a big game of rugby, or if we were going out for surf and it was it was like on that day and it was going to be big or heavy or uh, we were going to go sort of any sort of big moment, he'd be like, you know what, son, if you die, you die. (laughs) (laughs) And we were just, we always used to just crack up and and the beauty of it would ease any tension that was there because we found it so funny. We'd always like to think that it had some sort of of metaphorical um, meaning behind it, but nah, it was just stood for what it meant. If you die, you die. Just don't think about it. Oh, how good. Well, you're not dead yet. And what a career. No. What a journey. Geez, you've been on a path and obviously your time at London Irish. I loved my time over there at London Irish with you. You're an absolute champion bloke. Um, had some good times on and off the field. Uh, your time with Scotland was awesome to hear about and looking forward to following your journey for the rest of your career and into post-rugby career as well. Hopefully, look forward to catch up with you in Wellington when you're um, decide to come back here, come to your barber shop and come get some photos and a haircut. I'm definitely sure that you'll come all that way no matter what because it'll be free or cheap. <laughs> and, um... You're still doing free haircuts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember you were the first ever of the boys outside of the actual uh, course I did to get a haircut. Oh, I do and, remember uh, it because... I butchered you, remember? <laughs> you, left the, you, took, you left the thing off. <laughs> it was straight zero. And I remember it going I down to this... my back. I was like, oh, that's nothing's on there. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you kept coming back because it was free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did a good job. <laughs> No, thanks very much, and uh, I love to see you uh, progress in this field. You've got a natural talent for it, and look forward to hearing uh, more from Waterlad. Oh, I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for coming on, brother. Love your work. Cheers, bro. Cheers, bro.